0: Well, good to see you this morning, and um, as Jake said, welcome to downtown Presbyterian. Glad to have you here. If this is your first time especially, really glad that you're here, and uh, please make yourself at home, and if there's questions that we can answer, please let one of us know. Uh, if I haven't met you, my name is Brian Haybig, and I'm one of the pastors here, and that was Jake Patton, who was leading us in worship. We're going we're gonna to pick back up. On the book that we've been studying, we've been studying this New Testament book of Acts. It comes after the first four Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it's really a bridge to the rest of the New Testament. So we're about halfway through now. This is Acts chapter 15, and if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow in the bulletin. That's the passage we'll be looking at. But uh, I, want you, I want you to try to think of this scenario now, again, we, we never assume that everyone here is a Christian. We never assume that you're familiar with biblical content. But there, there are people here who uh, are professing Christians and have some biblical background. So if, if that's you, I, I want you to picture this. Picture if you were going to write someone a short letter. And you're going to write someone who's confused about the essence of Christianity and you're just going to write one letter, you're not going to send them a packet, you're not going to send them a curriculum, you're just going to send essentially a short note, what would you say to clarify, this, this is kind of the main thing, that that's going to happen in this passage, and let me give you a little bit of context, and then I want to just let you hear the passage. The context is that earlier in the book of Acts, and we looked at this a few weeks ago, the The gospel. Now, I'm going to be talking about that. Jake's already talked about the gospel. That's just the biblical term for good news. It's the good news that God is giving to messed up mankind, to messed up humanity, sinful humanity. The gospel had traveled from Jerusalem to different parts of the world. And this is what Acts really tells us about. And at one point, it went to this city of Antioch. Now, there were multiple cities named Antioch, but the one that is in this passage, it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. And, and just even as I studied it, I was kind of blown away by, it. like, we're not familiar with it, but it was, it was an incredibly influential area, really like a hub city. Lots of people, lots of culture, lots of wealth, lots of influence, lots of people coming through on trade routes. So, very strategic very influential. And when I was studying for this, one of, the, one of the commentaries that I use is by a guy named John Stott. He passed away several years ago. It's a really great little study of Acts. And he, he, he used a great sentence. He said, the trickle of Gentile converts was fast becoming a torrent. And, and th- this is sort of hard for us to understand. And this is really important going into this passage. We are used to church... Christianity, whatever you want to call it, as being just this dominant Gentile thing, non Jewish thing. That's not how Christianity started. It really starts with Jerusalem as a home base. And the first people who believe in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, have grown up Jewish. And the men were circumcised. And they ate the Jewish diet. And, like, that would be the Christian norm. And all of a sudden there's this news about not only is the gospel spreading all over the world, but Antioch so think like an L.A. or a San Francisco, big, influential, lots of people. All these people are believing in Jesus, in that city. but here's the thing: these people who are believing in the Jewish Messiah, they don't eat the Jewish food, and the men aren't being circumcised. Is this legit or is it not? And so uh, what's going to happen in this passage, now it's not in the bulletin, but it's in between what we've got in the the bulletin. There's going to be a religious council, an assembly. Presbyterians would say this is the first general assembly. And apostles and elders and believers come together and they debate this theological question. To follow Jesus, to be right with God, do you have to become more Jewish or not? And they write a letter, all right? So let's look at this. Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. And it's going to say some men come down. So what that's describing is men coming down from the Jerusalem area to the city of Antioch, this big influential city, all right? Acts chapter 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses... When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know... That in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers, nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So, when this council has met, they've debated, they've come to a conclusion, they draft a letter, and they send it down to these Gentile Christians in Antioch. So let's pick up there, verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch. With Paul and Barnabas, they sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, in Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions... It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the uh, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements." That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you be our helper. And you've called yourself the, the help of Israel, the help of your people. And we need you to help us in ways that we don't even know. But one way that you ne- we need your help is we need your help to, to eat from your hand. We need help to be spiritually nourished. We need help to listen and concentrate. We need help not to be closed off to you. So help us and open up our hearts with your word. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let me start off with something that I've read to to some of you before. This is by a a writer named Jean Fleming. And uh, she wrote this a while back. So she says at this point she's been a Christian for 20 years. By now she's probably been a Christian for, I don't know, 40 years. But let me just read the quote. She says, In the 20 some years I've been a Christian, I've received instruction on and been challenged to read my Bible daily, pray without ceasing, do in depth Bible study regularly, memorize scripture, meditate day and night, fellowship with other believers, always be ready to give an answer to the questioning unbeliever, give to missions and to the poor, work as unto the Lord, use my time judiciously, give thanks in all circumstances. Serve the body using my gifts to edify others. Keep a clean house as a testimony. Practice gracious hospitality. Submit to my husband. Love and train my children. Disciple other women. Manage finances as a good steward. Involve myself in school and community activities. Develop and maintain non-Christian friendships. Stimulate my mind with careful reading. Improve my health through diet and exercise. Color coordinate my wardrobe watch my posture, and simplify my life by baking my own bread. Now, I think, I think she was probably going for effect, although she probably has at some point heard, heard all of those. But I'll just tell you from my own experience that that, that resonates because I, I'll tell you from a, a preacher slash teacher perspective, it's very easy when you want to like you know, give people their marching orders and and let people know that we can't just sit around. There's a lot of stuff to do. It's just really easy to start sentences like, well, real Christian men, and then fill in the blank. You know, or real Christian women, and then fill in the blank. Or real Christian families, and then fill in the blank. And what you fill in the blank with is the thing that you need to do. And the thing is, Scripture does call us to do things. I mean, like last week, I was talking about this, like, very stark, clear call to love and care for widows and orphans and their afflictions. And I, and I tried not to water that down. I tried to let the scriptures, and not just that, but even earlier ones that it echoes, I wanted us to hear it saying, it's calling us to do certain things in this world. But the way it can end up feeling in your heart, and when I, when I'm, and when I talk about your heart, I'm not just talking about your feelings, not like Hallmark card Heart. I'm talking about like the control center of our insides. Like our insides where we really do the thinking and the responding and the prioritizing and the doing in your heart. The, in your heart, what it starts to feel like is, I cannot keep up with everything that I'm supposed to keep up with. I May mean, I've heard so many sentences start with some version of... Christians today need to real men who love Jesus need to families that are going to follow God need to that I can't even I can't keep it straight anymore. And what's so toxic about that is that the net effect is that the the message of Jesus and like being a Jesus person and being in the Jesus community no longer seems like good news. And what jumps off the pages of Scripture, and it's, it's inherent in the Old Testament, it is explicit in the New Testament, is that this is absolutely wonderful news. It is wonderful news. And it's not like wonderful news where I have to grab you and wrench your arm behind your back and go, admit it, it's good news, isn't it, isn't it? It's, it, it is good news to anybody in their condition. I want to I use this text, not use it, I want to I dig into this text, but, but let it show us that the good news is actually good. And, and here's my points. The good news is believed, not improved. The good news is believed, not improved. And the good news lifts up, not weighs down. And the good news lifts up, not weighs down. First off, the the good news is believed, not improved. Now, again, here's the context. The gospel had gone into this big, strategic, influential uh, city in the Roman Empire. Third biggest in the Roman Empire, Antioch. And people responded to it in faith. They're believing in Jesus as the Lord and the Savior. I mean, in the Roman Empire, they're believing that Caesar is not Lord which would have been one of his terms. They're believing that Jesus is Lord. So those original evangelists or missionaries, whatever you want to call them, they move on and a group comes from Jerusalem behind them to these new believers in Jesus in the city of Antioch. And they don't come and say, don't believe in Jesus. That's not their, that's not their message. They say, you do have to believe in Jesus. He is the Messiah, but you must also Keep the law of Moses. And specifically, men must be circumcised. The sign of being brought into the community of God's people. So believe in Jesus plus that and you'll be saved. But you can't just believe, period, and be saved. Now, here's, here's how the text describes it. Verse 1, Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, right, new believers... Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And that gets into a... There's a hot debate, especially between Paul and these men, because he's from their background. Well, then you get to verse 5, and it says this. The debate's gone to Jerusalem. Some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees... And boy, did you catch that phrase that there were people who had, like Paul, grown up Pharisee, and now were believers in Jesus but here's their point of view. Some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary, all right? Like, you have to do this. It is necessary to circumcise these new Gentile Christians and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now, again, th- this doesn't really land with us. We've just grown up and we... Gentiles are Christians... Most everybody in this room, ethnically, is Gentile. I don't know the ratios, but I think overwhelmingly, Gentile backgrounds. Uh, here's the best summary I've, I've I encountered working on this. This is by a New Testament scholar named John Paul Hill. He says The first Christians were all Jews, Jesus was a Jew and the Jewish Messiah. God had only one covenant people the Jews. Christianity was a messianic movement within Judaism. Jews had always demanded of all Gentile converts the requirements of circumcision and rituals of the Torah. Why should that change? In other words, these men who are saying, okay, yeah, you must believe in Jesus. God has sent the Messiah. But you must receive, men, this sign on you and keep the law of Moses because... That's what God's people have always done. If you're going to be God's people, that's what God's people have always done. In some ways, it's a really natural response, even if it seems foreign to us. So, the apostles and the elders get together and they hash it out. What is their conclusion? And I want you to see this loud and clear. See it vividly. Verse 7. After there had been much debate, Peter... Now, pause button. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, but Peter was the apostle to the Jews. Grew up Jewish, knew the Jewish people from the inside. Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, The Gentile should hear the word of the what? The gospel. That these people should hear good news and do what? And believe, period. Not believe plus. Verse 8. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them. Says he gave them the Holy Spirit. Verse nine. He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by what faith. Period. Verse eleven. We believe that we will be saved. And this is interesting. Now he's turning the table, where the question he's asking is, how do we know that we're saved? They're saved. How do we know that we're saved? Verse 11. We believe that we, the apostles and elders, will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. And and I I really want to be careful and make sure that we're on the same page. Because it's easy to assume that, okay, grace. Everybody knows about grace. Everybody knows what the word grace means. I don't think everybody knows what the word grace means. What is grace? Uh, the, the way I used to explain it was I used to say that grace was, well, let's put it this way. If I, if this is me grabbing a lawnmower, okay, if I mowed your yard and we had agreed on a price of I'll mow your yard for, for 20 bucks, if I mow your yard and you give me 20 bucks, that's wages. But if you just walked up to me and gave me $20, that's grace. And I, w- I wouldn't explain it that way anymore, biblically. Biblically, what it would be like if I mowed your yard for 20 bucks, mowed it, and you gave me 20 bucks, that's wages. If I punched you in the face and was cruel to your family and you gave me $20, that's grace. It's not just that it's unearned, it's it's favor and kindness, not just in the absence of merit, in the face of demerit. That's grace. And here's this is Peter. <laughs> This is the Peter who lived with Jesus for three years and the apostles and the elders. And he says, those Gentiles down in Antioch, they are right with God and they're going to have eternal life the same way that we have eternal life. And we know that we're right with God. And it is only through God being gracious to us. It's only through the grace of Jesus, what he did for our demerit. And that's it. And here's the thing. Even as I've been thinking about this all week, and even as if I am, like, I'm all in in believing what I'm saying to you, I immediately feel this thing in me that wants to rush and say, but we still have to do a lot of stuff. You know, it's like I want to just then go, but don't go crazy with that. There's a guy named uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a pastor in, uh, first in Wales and then in London. It's like a five-minute walk from Buckingham Palace, Westminster Chapel. And just had a pretty remarkable ministry. Okay, when I tell you, I wish I could show you his picture that I've got on this handout. When I tell you that Martin Lloyd-Jones was not Lucy goosey believe me when I say, Martin Lloyd-Jones was not Lucy goosey He was old school. But here's what he said about... There's a litmus test you can apply about are we really believing and communicating the gospel. Here's what he says. He's a preacher. He says, the true preaching of the gospel of salvation by grace alone always leads to the possibility of this charge being brought against it. There's no better test as to whether a man is really preaching the New Testament gospel of salvation than this. That some people might misunderstand it and misinterpret it to mean that it really amounts to this, that because you're saved by grace alone, it doesn't matter at all what you do. Now, he was, again, he was not loosey-goosey. But he says this, you'll know when you're really preaching and believing good news that's really good and free when it sounds for all the world like you're saying, you know what, you can believe and it doesn't even matter what you do. If you're not misunderstood sometimes to, being say, to, to, to be saying that, then you're probably not really giving people good news. If you're putting an asterisk beside it, or kind of putting a little caboose on the end of it, like don't get crazy, remember this too. Some little rider clause. Then it's not the gospel. He says that's a litmus test. Um, Is that how it feels to you? If you have come into contact with the good news, does it feel like, okay, yeah, great. I'm going to heaven, but for crying out loud, it's like killing me right now. I feel like the Bible is the tax code or something. Because what God is saying to us like when, when the apostles and the elders boiled down the meat and potatoes of what this thing is about in a short letter, they said this. It's good news. It's good news. You believe it plus nothing to know that you're right with God. You believe it plus nothing to know that you have His favor and you have eternal life and you're going to be with Him forever. Period. But the other thing is this. The way that we live that out and respond to it, does it connect us to people more or does it divide people? Uh, I I just came across this piece this week and it was from the UK Guardian and it was about what Britain voted as the number one religious joke of all time. It's by a guy named Emo Phillips. I'm gonna see if I can do this joke uh, from memory. I'm gonna tell it from his point of view. He says, I was in San Francisco and I was on the Golden Gate Bridge and I saw a man that was about to jump off the bridge and take his life and I said, don't do it and he said, nobody loves me. And I said, do you believe in God? And he said, yeah, and I said, me too. Are you Christian or Jewish? He said, I'm Christian. I said, me too. Protestant or Catholic? He said, I'm Protestant. I said, me too. What franchise? And he said, Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. I said, me too. Northern conservative Baptist or Northern liberal Baptist? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Baptist, Eastern Region? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes Region. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? And he said, Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. And I said, die heretic! And I pushed him off the bridge. I bring up that ill-advised joke to, uh, <laughs> to say that quite literally in that joke, the add-ons are piling up to like it just ultimately divides them at the end. Now contrast that with what the gospel does to people. Go back to verse 8. This, again, to belabor the point, this is Peter. The Peter, as in Peter makes the confession and Jesus says, On this rock I will build my church. Verse 8, God who knows the heart bore witness to them, these Christians in Antioch, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And get this, verse 9, and he made no distinction between us and them. They are just as in as the apostles are in. They are just as clean and redeemed as the apostles. And boy, this has such a great echo in the letter. Look how the letter starts. You know, in in the first century, in this kind of context, you don't begin with the name of the person you're writing. The the, the sender gives their name and then, then... the recipient. So listen, this is so elegant. The apostles and the elders draft it this way. They say, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles. Like They call them what they call themselves. And I, you know, I, let me be candid. I'm not Presbyterian by default. Theologically, structurally, these reflect my convictions from the Scripture. And like any denomination, it's not a perfect denomination. It's like I heard one person describe it as, "Well, it's a mess, but it's one of the better messes that I know." But do do Presbyterian believers in the Gospel believe that there's something that we've added that makes us a better? kind of Christian, like a better brand than this tradition of believers in Jesus or that tradition of believers in Jesus, God makes no distinction. And what you may have just heard me say is, doctrine doesn't matter. I'm not saying that. Or what we do doesn't matter. I'm not saying that. Or how we worship doesn't matter. I'm not saying that. But as far as what gives us a right standing to stand before the living God, to stand before the living God like we all will one day at the end, you have Christ or you don't. And if you have Christ, there is no distinction. You have good news. That's the first thing. Uh, Second thing is that the good news lifts up it doesn't weigh down. Notice a couple of key words here. Verse 10, this is back to Peter's speech. He says, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Now, you know what a yoke is? Sometimes you'll even see them in, you know, some place that has little artifacts or maybe up on the restaurant that has bric-a-brac on it or something. Maybe you've seen a yoke at a Walmart, uh, I don't know, or a, um, whatever. But uh, it, it's the thing that you put on the ox or the beast of burden to direct them. And it's kind of like the point of connection between the driver and the, and, and the beast of burden. Now, that term was not necessarily a bad term, because we're going to be guided by something. Like, we're going to have some kind of... You're going to have some kind of yoke in your life. Something's going to direct you, move you, steer you. And Jesus even used that term positively. You know, he said that my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Like, if I steer you, if I drive you, I will not be cruel to you. I'll be life-giving to you. But Peter stands up and says this. To these people who say, okay, yeah, they got to believe in Jesus, but they also have to keep the law of Moses. Peter says... Why are you putting a yoke on them that we can't do? Are you really familiar with the requirements of all of the law of Moses? Because if you're going to keep one part of it, you've got to keep the whole deal. The law itself says this. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. You can't keep 99% of the law and be square with the house. You've got to keep 100%. You haven't done that. I haven't done that. Do not put that yoke on those new believers. And so then when they draft the letter, what do they say? Verse 28. It has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. We'll look at those in just a second. And when they got the letter, look at the effect of it. You know, when, when they received a letter that didn't throw the kitchen sink at them, but lifted the burden from them, verse, look at verse 30. When they were sent off, so that's Paul and Barnabas and, and um, the other two men. They went down to Antioch and having gathered the congrega- uh, congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they... The people in Antioch, they rejoiced because of its what? It encouraged them. That it's faith in Jesus plus nothing to stand before God. And again, I I know I said it earlier, but I'll say it again. I just think I know me well enough to know if it had been me, I would have at least sent a packet. And I probably would have felt the burden to send a whole curriculum. They're new Christians. They're like setting the DNA of the Antioch church for all these generations to come. And they're going to be like starting other churches. They need to know what God says about marriage, family, worship, theology. I would have thought at the very least you need to give them something like the book of Romans. Some masterpiece. The graciousness and the lightness of this letter is amazing. Now, what what did they say they did need to do? And, boy, there's been a lot of ink spilled about this list, and, and I, won't, uh, I won't pretend that I've got the definitive explanation, but here's what they say. We, we wanted to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. Verse 29, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. And, and I don't want to be irreverent. In some ways, that's a weird list. That would not be the big major points of our discipleship track for downtown Prez. All right, you know, point three, no strangled animals. Let's dive in. But the explanation that seems to shed the most light from from what I've seen is this, that, yeah, we could could throw the whole mosaic law at you. We could, like, extrapolate all these applications and to-do lists at you. If you eat food that you know has been like dedicated to or sacrificed to idols, which would be common in Antioch, common. That's what the marketplace would look like. If you do that in front of your Christian brothers and sisters who come from a Jewish background, they're they're just not going to be able to meet up with you. It's going to create more problems than it fixes. How about you avoid those foods? And, And the one about not eating blood, again, that might not seem like the big thing that we need to, do in our lives. It's not my big moral struggle. Stop eating blood. But th- that's, that's so old, it doesn't just go back to the law of Moses. That actually goes back to when Noah and his family came off the ark and God said, don't eat blood. Why did he say that? That's another sermon. I'm just saying, it's ancient to them. Way back in their history. And the apostles and the elders say, look, meet your Jewish brothers and sisters kind of halfway. And you're from the big city. You're from the scary, immortal city. You need to really take the high road with your sexuality. Avoid sexual immorality. Like, d- do some big things to send clear signals. I belong to Jesus and I love you. And I, I'll take, now this is kind of apples and oranges, but I thought about this when, um, when a friend of mine started our denomination's campus ministry at Harvard University, a guy named Glenn. When Glenn started uh, the RUF campus ministry at Harvard, after a while, he saw this thing happen where when the gospel really started to get in students' hearts, you know what's one way you could tell it? They started to be more okay with bees. You didn't have to worry about their work ethic. You know, they're at Harvard they've already done enough homework for 40 people's lifetimes but what happened and it wasn't because you know that he was standing up there saying hey look forget your classes come to more campus ministry activities no he wasn't doing that but what happened was when the gospel started to get down deep in their hearts guess what became more important relationships not just tasks not just the track not just achievement, but the people in their lives. And as relationships began to encroach more into their schedule, guess what suffered? Their studies. And Glenn said he took that as a sign is the good news is going into their heart. Um, let, let, let me ask us all this. I'm going to say you, but I'm also saying we, but I'm going to say you. Are you... If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, are you making the people around you feel heavy or light? And, and, and this isn't just about parents, but it has big relevance for parents. Is, is the way we're conveying who God is and what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be in a church, are you making knowing Jesus feel heavier and weightier and more discouraging, and the, to- the to-do list is getting longer and longer. Or are you giving something that lifts up and encourages that there's hope for somebody like me? Are you here this morning and you're weighted down? I mean, if because uh, I want to say this, that the Lord in His Word is making this clear. If if there's a voice inside you that's saying, if you did more, you'd be happier. If you did more, you'd get your spiritual life under control and God wouldn't be so frustrated with you. If you hear that, some of you hear that voice. But if you hear that voice, may I be a voice in your life saying, that is not God's voice. The voice of God says, look to my son who can bear the burden that you cannot bear. Believe in Him and receive life. All you will add is the sin. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, for good news that we don't have to add to, that we can't add to, for good news that lifts us up and doesn't crush us. We thank you. Lord Jesus, you were crushed so that we might not be crushed. You were lifted up on a cross so that we might be lifted up to your Father. We thank you for doing what we could not do. We thank you that it's good news for anybody. We pray in your name. Amen.